Praise God. Praise the Lord. Okay. I'm glad to be here. My name is still Prof, like these guys have said. I don't know if my wife is here. That's not a good way to start. Eh? Okay, I didn't come with her, but she was supposed to come, so hopefully. I wanted you guys here, but you missed. All right, um, I hope you can all hear me. There is a bit of activity today. We have a service there. We also have children there who are very loud. But I hope and trust that you can hear me. And we will have a wonderful time together. So like our service leaders have said, we've been going through the letter to the Ephesians. We started all the way from chapter 1 at the beginning of this year. And if you've had the privilege to be with us, I'm sure you've been blessed so far. I, like many, many of the people who have uh, taught on the different Sundays before me, they've tried to give a summary of what the letter is about, the intended audience, uh, broken down the different chapters, how the first three chapters talk about the Christian faith and what that means, and how, what it means to be a Christian, and how the last three chapters delve into the more practical aspects. And so today we are in chapter 4 and 1 verse 17. Last Sunday we had chapter 4 verse 1 to 16, which was the introduction of these next three chapters that talk about how this new life is in practice. Um, and that's what we're going to look at today. So our passage today is Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. And... It, it will, we're going to see how Paul continues to emphasize to the believers that he was writing to what it means to live as a Christian, as a child of God, as a believer, because that is who they were, because they had received Christ and they had been born again. So if you have your notebook and you're writing, eh, I've said that and seen no one is writing. Do you guys still write in this service? Writing is good, so you can refer to the things which you've written. Okay, even if you're writing on your phone, it's fine. It's good for you to have a reference. Otherwise, we can ask you what we've been doing this month and you're not sure, but it helps you to keep the message. Anyway, at the heart of our message today is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Praise the Lord. It is not uncommon in Paul's writing to the different churches that he wrote to that he challenged their faith. It's very easy to assume that Paul would take it for granted that since this is a place he had been to, he had preached the gospel to them, therefore he had to assume that they were all believers. We find consistently in Paul's letters a strong, unavoidable reminder, caution, warning about the genuineness of faith. It is very easy for you to have come to the teen service many times before for the first time. It's very easy for you to have been born in a Christian family, to have been in fellowships, and yet not know Jesus, and yet not have a personal relationship with him. And so, when the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The Bible is saying that without reservation, if you claim that you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are new. Without reservation. There is no need for an explanation. Uh, you see me, I received Jesus, but I'm still figuring zero. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Consequently, if you are not a new creation, you can't claim to be in Christ. The challenge though is that even though we are new creation, we are still stuck with an old quote. That's an illustration I got. That while we have been born again, the sinful nature has been taken away and God has given us a new nature, we have the flesh. You've heard uh, people refer to it as the flesh and we see in scripture referred to as the flesh and its desires and lusts that we still live with this body. Not to go so much into the dichotomy of the human 
person, how you have a soul, spirit, flesh, heart. But in simplicity, I hope we all know that our bodies are our bodies. They are not us. Praise the Lord. Even the way we address them, it's this is my body. So you are more than just that uh, thing you're putting on. And that's why it is painful when all of your hope is in you. How strong you are, how good you look. Because that stuff changes. But anyway, Paul is addressing these Christians because he knows that while they've been given a new nature, they still have an old coat. A coat that they need to put off so that they can put on a new coat. A new coat that is appropriate for them, that is fitting for them as God's children. And so in our reading today, you had the phrase, created to be like God. Did you guys hear that? In Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, created to be like God. And that is very, very important because that is something that God's children continually do for as long as they live on this side of eternity. We are never going to have a time where we stop wanting to be like God because we will not arrive on this side. We are always in a pursuit of becoming more and more like God. And so Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and in this second half of his letter, he's telling them what that means. What does it mean that you've been created to be like God? How does it work out in your everyday life, in the way you walk and talk and do life? How is it possible? So, at the heart of being a Christian, and I've already said 2 Corinthians 5.17, is not just claiming that you're a Christian, but it is being a Christian. It is becoming like Christ. In Matthew 7.21, it's a common passage that people like to quote, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus speaking to the people and he's telling them it's not enough to just claim to sing some nice songs or to have a cross or to have a Christian name. It is those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Perhaps you have been sold a very cheap faith, a faith that doesn't require you to do God's will, a faith that says, ah, it's okay, as long as you're not killing anyone, just you do you, hmm? be you. Have you had those things? Hey, you haven't. You guys are still in the right place. Okay. In 2 Thessalonians 4.3, the writer says that it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Yeah? That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans do who do not know God. And that is... In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. First John 2, 6 says, Whoever claims to live in him, him being Jesus, must live as Jesus did. And in just that reflection on those passages from Scripture, we must understand that we have to strive to conform, to, co to be transformed to the image of God. In whose likeness, like Ephesians tells us, we have been created. So with that background, with that beginning, we're going to get into Ephesians now. So I hope we've understood that being a Christian is not just about saying it, or as with a friend yesterday who said, when your faith is just a noun, so it's faith, you describe it, but your faith needs to be a verb, okay? Because James tells us that faith without actions is dead. You can call it faith all, the, all day, all year, all your life. But if there is no action to prove that there is faith, you have no guarantee that it is alive. When we turn to Ephesians now, I want to 
add on what I said earlier when I said that our bodies are our bodies. We are not our bodies, right? Okay? And so I want to introduce a concept that you're all aware of and you use a lot, and that is the mind or the heart. Very often we say it's what I feel or in my mind, um, the place where we think, where our emotions are, where our convictions are born, where our feelings are kept, where our desires and dreams, you know, someone shared earlier how they got the school of their dreams. So you as a person, your ambitions, your hopes, your dreams, your thoughts, your ideas are much more than just your body. And that's what I want us to think about. The mind, we could consider it to be the sum total of all those things. When you put all those things together without necessarily, necessarily drawing any lines, which I don't want to do, but I'll refer us to some scriptures. We'll begin with Proverbs 23, verse 7. And it says, For as, some versions say, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Others say, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Within that passage, we have a very important insight into how we think and who we are. Because the Bible is saying that the way you think is who you are. It's actually the other way around. Who you are will determine the way you think. Because if you're a child of God, then you have to think as a child of... Are we together? You don't begin by thinking as a child of God, then you become. You become a child of God and then... Let's use agriculture. So it's a mango tree first, then we get mango fruit, right? We don't first get some mango fruit and then somehow draw a tree. Okay, then people say that thing of the egg and the chicken, but that's not our discussion today, okay? What is important is when we think about our mind and how we think and our hearts and the things that we love and the things that we cherish, it could be easy for us to explain them away, to justify them and say, the reason why I think like that is because most of my friends think like that. My family, where I come from, that is how we are, okay? But what Paul is going to tell the Ephesians is, you're not just anyhow, you're a new creation, and therefore you have to think in a new way. In Matthew 7, verse 15 to 20, Jesus warns the people, and this is what he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So we recognize your being a child of God by your fruit, by the result of your life, the work, the thoughts, the acts, and everything that follows from that. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. It's difficult to appreciate the new life to appreciate holiness when we don't want to admit what the opposite of that is. And so we're going to begin in our meditation on this passage of Ephesians by appreciating that we know exactly what the former way of life is. When Paul says the futility of their thinking and those people who are ignorant because they're separate from God He's referring to people in the world, people who do not know God, don't have a relationship with Jesus. The challenge they have is that they are trapped. We sang one of the songs and it says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we know that God uh, has set us free from sin, 
from slavery to sin, the chains have been broken, but the people in the world are not so. One of the defining marks of those who are separate from God is that they are self-centered. Have you ever been told you're self-centered? You may not want to put up your hand, but you've had. Eh? You've ever been told. And at that time when you were told you are self-centered, you felt like, ah, there are worse things people can say. You have no idea how terrible it is to be self-centered. Self-centered is idol worship because everything revolves around you. You have deposed God and now it is you. In fact, because you're not happy, the whole world needs to stop and address your issues. Eh? No, no, no. Le seriously. First love yourself. Forget everyone else. That's what, do you guys get those memes? Other people can wait. It's about you. What do you feel? That is such a crude form of idolatry. When we think of idolatry, we are easy to point at Indians and Hindus because they have small gods and, and Chinese because they have dragons. You guys have been practicing idolatry of self because you depose God and you are the center of everything. That is how people in the world are trapped. Every effort they make is to please self. That is the old way of life. Before you came to know Christ, everything you did was for yourself. You could argue and say, but as a good person, I used to help my friends with homework. I, I used to... This is what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2, and we did this a, a, a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 2 from verse 1 to 3 says, As for you, in your former way of life, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Doing what? Gratifying the cravings of our old court, the flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath that is a way of the sinful nature you're your own god you have no moral standard you have no higher authority that you um, account to you seek to please yourself in everything that you do it revolves around me 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 i i i what i want what works for me there is no purpose beyond yourself it is all about me 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 that kind of life was empty. That kind of life was useless. That kind of life was a life of slavery to sin. You had no choice. You couldn't say no. And so, in that kind of life, you can accomplish nothing of eternal significance. You can accomplish nothing that is relevant to God and his mission in the world. In fact, um, Ecclesiastes is a, is a book that people like because it has a bit of wisdom that it shares, that sometimes we like two are better than one, amen? Ha, only Reverend Gerald and Reverend Lovins can agree, but two are better than one. But another very startling truth that Ecclesiastes points out, chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 11, listen. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You could defend all you want and say, but this is my dream. You know, I want to be like this when I grow up. And there's nothing wrong with all of those things. Ecclesiastes is telling us, separated from God, all of that is meaningless. And when you come to Christ, the only reason it has meaning is because it's helping achieve God's purpose. And so that's the contrast of what the old life is. The new life is not like that. The new life we've been given, I read earlier where the Bible tells us that God did not call us to live impure lives. He called us to live holy righteous lives in ephesians 2 10 11 and we did that also a couple of weeks ago we were reminded in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 2 that we are god's workmanship or his handiwork the new creation created in christ jesus 
To do what? To do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. In this new way of life, we think, we function, we feel, we believe, we desire in response to God's will. Praise the Lord. It's not easy to accept. To be told, one of the things we struggle with, again, because we are putting off the old court, is we have an inclination to our own desires. And when it's pointed out to us that what we are doing is not pleasing to God, it's not so easy to dissociate. But Paul is telling the Ephesians, you must no longer. Do you hear the weight of that language? He doesn't walk to them and say, you should consider abandoning those former habits. He says, you must no longer, as a matter of life and death, that if you claim to be a child of God, it must kukakata you so much that you follow God's will. It must be impressed on your heart that you make every effort. Granted, we fail many times because of the flesh, because we are led astray, peer pressure, temptation, but that doesn't change the general direction of where we are going. We are growing to be more and more like God. We don't think the way we want to think. We think the way God wants us to think. Very big difference. And that's why Paul is saying, if indeed you're believers, you must no longer think and live like the people who do not know God do. The people in the world live in darkness. They're ignorant of the truth. And sometimes that's difficult for us to believe when we consider the amount of street preachers we have in this city because there are people all around the country speaking and shouting and blazing the gospel from all corners. But the problem of blindness is it doesn't matter how many lights are on in the room. You'll never see. The problem is you've never been blind. You will not understand this. But if you're blind, how many lights do you need to see? doesn't matter. So no matter how much you shout, no matter how much you rant, for those who are in the world, those who are dead in their sins, who have not come to know Jesus, they have no knowledge of the truth. They have no knowledge of the light. John chapter 1 verse 5 to 6. First John. First John chapter 1 verse 5 to 6 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him... If we claim that we are his children, that we've been born again, and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Remember I said that Paul in his second, second block of his letter is addressing practical truth. He's not telling them anymore about the theology and, the, and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be made alive. He's saying, how does that affect your life? He's saying, if you claim that you are God's child, that you're a believer, that you've been born again, and yet you walk in darkness, you walk as people who do not know God, you behave like them, you think like them, in fact, you talk like them, you lie. And you're not practicing the truth because you ought to live in the light. I think the theme for the camp before the last camp, children of the light, who remembers that camp? Hi. Guys, COVID swiped your memory. Okay. We were saying that we are children of the light and we ought to live as children of the light. And that's what Paul is saying. So we turn to verse 20, where Paul says in Ephesians 4, that, however, I trust that we've had a clear contrast of what our former way of life was like. And now Paul is saying that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22, what were you taught? You were taught with regard to your former way of life. To put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you forget anything I am going to say today, try and remember this. Unless 
there is a distinction in your way of living. There is a good possibility that there is no distinction in your nature either. If there is no distinction between you and the people in the world, chances are very high. There is no distinction in your nature. And when I say nature, I'm saying 2 Corinthians 5.17, we had an old sinful nature. When we came to Jesus, that was taken away and we were given a new nature. We were created anew. And so the deceit that you can somehow blend in with the world, fit in, stay on track with them, and somehow still be a child of God. Chai! That's hard to sell. Very, very hard. I don't know how you sit with yourself and convince yourself that I know nothing about my life says I'm a Christian, but me in my heart I'm a Christian. In your heart. Did Jesus say you'll know them by their heart? Jesus said we, they, that we would know those who are his by the result of their lives, by the way they live, the way they talk, the way they think, the attitude they have in their minds. So even you, that's how you know you're a Christian. How do you know you're a Christian if you don't behave or live like one? The Ephesians are reminded the very same thing. Remember I say that Paul doesn't hesitate to challenge people who claim they're believers about their faith. They're reminded that there is this old self that they need to put off and a new self that they need to put on. So I trust that at this point it's clear that there is an old self and a new self, right? Are we together? There is clearly an old self and clearly a new self. In this new way of life, we are called to be like... This is the part where you guys help me. In this new way of life, we are called to be like? Say it like you're not afraid. In this new way of life, we are called to be like? Like Christ, like God, like Jesus. God's word is truth. In John, John says that in, in John 17, 17, that sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. If we are supposed to be conformed to the image of God, conformed to the image of Christ. If Jesus is the one after whom we must mirror our lives, is the one, is the standard by which we must live, if he is the one that we must worship and adore and pursue, if he is the authority to whom we account. Throughout chapters 1 to 3, Paul has described what it means or what it cost, or what it took for God to create you anew. He explained how God's son had to take your place, pay the penalty that you deserved while you were dead in your sins, when you knew nothing, take that penalty, pay the price, so that you and I could have a chance, an opportunity to be friends with God. He tells how Christ has resurrected us from that death and given us eternal life even now. And what Paul is trying to say is that that new creation comes along with a new way of thinking, a, an abolishment of self-centeredness, where we look to Christ and live for him. Praise the Lord. It may be sometimes... In terms of application and practicality, you may be thinking, but Prof, what are you saying? You're saying all these things of we need to live like Christ. What does that look like? God's will. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do not buy that deception. If anyone ever tries to convince you that you should live for yourself, you guys, the devil is nice. When he came to tempt Eve, you think, okay, of course it was a serpent. That's a bit scary. I don't know why Eve didn't run. Maybe she hadn't learned that serpent's bite. But how, how cunning he was in his speech. He says, no, you won't die. I just eat. God does, doesn't want you to become like him. 
And so all the sweet talking, the deception, the philosophies of the world that convince you that it's okay to live for yourself. It's okay to pursue what you want and your dreams and what, what, what you want to achieve. The Bible is saying, whoever is in Christ, a new creation, should not live for themselves, but for Christ. That's very different. Very different. Those who live for Christ are very different in the way that they act compared to those who live for themselves. In that understanding, the distinction between light and darkness, I have heard a few young people ask before, probably asked it myself when I was your age, like, so how far is too far? Huh? Do you guys ever get that question? You're trying to do something and you're thinking, is this wrong? Like, is this okay? You guys, what do you, you don't do nothing. Do you ever get that? Someone please say yes, so I know I'm talking to real Christians who are trying to live like, do you ever get that? Yeah. Now the thing is, think about this. If you're truly trying to live for Christ, what are you doing on the border of light and darkness? Praise God. Let, let, let's get that image in our minds. We have a country here called Uganda where we live. And you're being told, this is heaven. Uganda is heaven. Let me not name another country and call it hell. You guys may quote me. So the other country is hell. And there is a boundary. And you're saying, I want to be like God. I want to live for Jesus. Where should you be? At the center of that country. You want to do everything it takes to be as far away from that border as you can. But do you know what we do? Like, but the line is not so clear here. Like, okay, I know you say it, like, my friends are, but aren't you being judgmental? That's, that's not the way of life that we've been called to live. We have no business being on the border discussing issues with the other guys. Of, so what do you guys do when you're bored? And, ah, you guys, you're having fun. That's how temptation comes. You are straying so close to the border that it's very easy for someone from the other side to just grab you and drag you in how much more difficult it is when you're at the center of this country for that darkness to have an effect on you. Think about that. That's the new way of life. That's what it means to put off the old court. To not say, I'll let go of that, but I want to keep this. That's, you know, towing on the board and it's dangerous. Let's get to our last section from verse 25 to 32. Therefore, in conclusion, because of all these things Paul has said to this point, he's saying, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Verse 26. In your anger, do not... Say it with me. In your anger, do not... Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a... An opportunity. Some versions say foothold. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29. Do not let, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. No rotten talk. Nice. Come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. If to this point it hasn't been very clear, how practical is this new life? What things am I supposed to do that are Christ-like, that will help me become like God? 25 to 32, from the top. Disclaimer. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he nowhere claims that this is the list. If you do these things, you're finished. No. Paul doesn't claim to give the Ephesians what you want to call an exhaustive list of all the possible ways they could live like Christ but he gives them a very good example to start with. He gives them a good foundation. He tries to cover the whole range 
of their human experience, things that they will most likely be involved in. We find in other letters and throughout the Bible a lot of instruction, uh, counsel, guidance, commands that direct us to live like God. But these are the ones that Paul focuses on. Put off falsehood and speak the truth. Put off falsehood and speak. So remember, you're putting off the old self. Your old self, lying, was second nature. We will see very soon in the scriptures. So the world, let me, guys, let me let you in on a secret that's not a secret. Do you have everyone's attention, even the guys who are sleeping? I hope they are with me in their dreams. The world functions on lies. Did you guys know? Well, it's a lie, so you would, and you guys know the truth. But the world functions on lies. That car that we call the world is driven on lies. Hi, you have no idea. If for some strange reason, someone would say the truth, ah, <laughs> eh, the end of the world. Okay, maybe I've gone far. Think of yourself. If that threat guys used to give when they would do crusades, you guys, I don't know where you found Jesus, and they say, on judgment day, there'll be a big screen like that, and your whole life will show. You're like, eh, my whole life from before or from before. Do you know how many people would run to Jesus when they were told that if you don't come, your whole life is coming here? You can't risk you know the things you're hiding? You have to come. Now, I'm telling you in the same way, the world, its systems, everything that is not godly is built on lies. If the truth was spoken, it would collapse. It would explode. In fact, in order for the world to keep running, they need to keep lying. The people in the world, they need to keep, they can't, they cannot stop lying. That's why you can't be like them. You have to be different. You guys are Ugandans. Let me, one thing. Imagine someone stepped up from NSSF and said, guys, I've come tell the truth. Just one person. Just, I'm going to tell you everything that we did. What are the chances they would live to see the next day? They can't. They can't let them. You're going to destroy everything we've been working on. So the world functions on lies. But that's not the new way of life. The new way of life we've been called to in Christ is a life that is based on the truth. That's why Paul is telling these believers, you must put off falsehood and speak the truth. You see, our old nature was accustomed to lies. Listen to the scripture. John chapter 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Jesus addressing all of those that had not yet come to him. How then can you claim that I'm here, I'm a child of God, but I still lie? You can't, because that's the, that's the old self, the new self we've been called to speak the truth. And I'm telling you, you try speaking the truth, you'll see. By the way, many times in the teen service, we've talked about our faith and we've talked about what it means to live for Jesus. And one of the things that we struggle with is, but me, I'm not suffering for Jesus. You guys are always telling us we shall suffer over living for Jesus is hard. Do you know why you're not suffering? You're not speaking the truth. That's all. You try to speak the truth and see how many friends you'll have. You genuinely tell your friends that this is not right. You think they'll call you next time? <laughs> no, you go. Your, your guys are going to be in school. And tell the teacher, yeah, we didn't do the work. Aye. You may not sleep in dorm. So I'm telling you, the reason you're having it so easy in the world is you're not speaking the truth. The truth comes at a cost. Because if you're going to have to do the right thing, means you're going to miss out of so much enjoyment. How much vibe do you think is in the truth? All the vibe is in the world. Just going on with the flow. Like, yeah, everyone says, everyone says, 
When you stand out to speak the truth, you're like a thorn. You're like a bright light shining in a dark room. That's the new life. Anger. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. We could, for whatever reason, justify why we are angry. We, we all get angry for different reasons. Someone says something unpleasant, you're hurt, you're offended, it could be physical, harm, could be emotional. Name it. There is no question that you're angry. There is no question that you will become angry. But this is the difference of the new life. That while in the world, when people get angry, they act out of their anger. They are free to do whatever they want, say back. In fact, they repay evil with evil. You hurt me, I hurt you, right? But in the new way of life, where you've been created to be like God, in your anger, do not sin. Now, think, and I'll give you the whole year. You find one good thing you can do with anger. Like, just go back home and think to yourself and say, I was so angry, decided to go and bless someone. I was so angry at her, I gave her a hug. Ah. The reason we are being warned about anger is what James says in chapter 1, verse 20. James says, because, no, it actually doesn't start like that. My apologies. James chapter 1, verse 20, let's stand there. No, it actually starts like that. James chapter 1, verse 20. You can open your Bibles with me. It says, no, that's not the one. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Some of us are short-tempered, so you may be here and say, ah, but me, I'm short-tempered. God knows that's my weakness. No, that's the old self. In the new self, you have an opportunity to overcome anger with love, with grace, with mercy, with kindness, with patience, with gentleness. That's the fruit of what? The Spirit. Because you've been created anew. You have the help of the Holy Spirit with whom you're able to do what you couldn't do formally. So James 1.20, man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness or the righteousness that God desires. And so that is it, friends. You can justify your anger all day, but I pray that you'll remember your anger will never, never accomplish or produce the righteousness God desires. So if it is true that you want to live for God, when you find yourself angry, you have, to, you, have, you have to make a decision. Do you follow your anger or you follow God? And it's not the easiest thing to do. Same as speaking the truth, right? It's difficult. You weigh your options. How will people see me? What will they think? But that's the new life, and that's the cost that we choose to follow God, not men. Therefore, we must rid ourselves of human anger because it is not a worthy tool for doing God's work. Remember earlier in Ephesians 2, we say that we were created for good works. Anger will never help you in doing good works. When we have the same mind as Jesus did, we are not strangers to trials, hardships, offense, persecution, embarrassment. We're not strangers to that. In fact, Jesus warned us that if the world hated him first, we can be sure the world will hate us. And so when we find ourselves angry, the Bible is warning us, do not let that anger lead you into sin. Rather, remember kindness, mercy, grace, compassion, gentleness, patience, self-control. Because God is, a, God is pleased to do his work in your life through those means. So, a life that is not centered on self, but centered on God, will not give us the free pass to act out in anger. Paul continues in Ephesians that those who steal should no longer steal, right? The problem with stealing is no one is a thief until they are caught. Because who here wants to put up their hand and say they're a thief? No one. 
But when we catch you, it's hard now for you to say you're not. Right? So stealing is a work of darkness, right? What time do thieves live to come? Of course, thieves have also grown some confidence. They come during the day, but they are, their designated time is nighttime so that they are not seen. They come under the cover of darkness, and that's where they operate. Paul is writing to believers, and I will show you how you're all thieves in a moment, that in our generation, we struggle with the idea of work. Now, you guys are going to say, yeah, but we are students, we don't have jobs. No, work is not a job. It is work. Even house chores are work. Mm-hmm. So we are easily enticed by the idea of a soft life. Do you have any soft life ambassadors here? You wouldn't put up your hand. But a life where, listen, a life where we have everything we want without having to work for it. Just, I want everything. Don't make me do it. Don't, don't, just give me. Yeah? It's true that we get gifts. We get gifts from parents, friends. That's true. But we don't get gifts for everything. How many of you get gifts for clothes every day? Your parents will buy for you. You get a gift of a cake on your birthday. So gifts is not the way God designed us to get things. eh? We have to work. But when we begin considering, guys at the back, are you with me? When we begin considering work to be synonymous with suffering, and we come up with vain explanations, reasons why God's blessings have, you know, need to locate me and free me from this suffering and this curse of work, are we being like God? Let me remind you, in the beginning, for six solid days, do you know what God was doing? Working. Six days, non-stop. And on the seventh day, he rested. Now, many people read Genesis, and like, Genesis is just a nice story, not so much. God, in the beginning, he didn't begin by eating. He began by working. What a solid example. So for you to claim that because you have to work at home or because you're asked to do something that you'd rather not do and say God has forsaken you, God is shocked. Like me and me, you. Our God works. When you read through the Bible, you see God chilling on some seat somewhere, enjoying a cold drink at the beach. God is active, working. That is a new nature. Laziness has never been a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You guys, sleeping is not a hobby. There are guys who are like me, my hobby is sleeping. What? You, guys, you need to have a healthy amount of sleep, but it's not a thing that you're called to invest in. Rest is good, but for one day, not seven, you, you're sleeping the whole week, every day. Ah. You may never admit it, but when you live and think like that, you're a thief. You're a thief because you want to take from where you have not sown. You want to reap benefits of things you have not worked for. You want to gain from the work of others while putting none of your own. You want to go back home and enjoy a nice lunch and sit on clean chairs and use nice dishes that you do not want to wash. That's theft. You're a thief. And that's not the new way of life. God has called us in this new creation to become like him, to put to good use the resources he has given us, and that includes your hands. So for anything, Colossians tells us that whatever you do with your hands, work at it as though you're serving, whatever. So you have no excuse to claim, ah, me, I can't do anything, Um, I don't have a job. Work is whatever your hands find to do. Do it as though you're serving God and not men. Cheating. That's theft. You want to take someone else's knowledge. You're in the exam and you're like, what, what answer do you have for number two? Like, we're just discuss- That's theft. You probably didn't even read that topic. And so you want to get marks that don't belong to you. That's not the new way of life, right? It's not. It's go to the last two. Unwholesome talk. So Paul tells the people about unwholesome uh, rotten talk is how the version on the screen uh, portrayed it. 
and forgiveness. If indeed we are a new creation in Christ, God calls us to speak words that build others up, that are helpful according to their need, not words that would tear them down. It's a very, very clear distinction. If you're going to have to say something, if for God's sake you have to open your mouth, in the new nature, open your mouth to build others, not to tear them, so if what you're going to say is not going to help us, you can keep it and we won't even have any problem. But because of the words that we say, because of the words that have been said to us, people are hurt, broken, torn down, discouraged. And so we're being told that's not the way of life we've been taught in Christ. We've been taught, um, Colossians 4, 6 says, let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer every one because what you say has an effect on people what you say will influence people so you want as a child of god as a believer to say those things that are going to build people up help them one of my sincerest prayers is in psalms chapter 19 verse 14 i say that because i see how so easily i go off track Psalms chapter 19 verse 14 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do we genuinely desire that what we say and think is pleasing to God? Because that's the new way of life. That if it is not pleasing to God, we ought not to say it. Finally, forgiveness. Until we come to understand the depths, the magnitude of God's forgiveness towards us in Christ, we will think too highly of ourselves and we will struggle to forgive others. Remember what I said at the beginning about the people in the world, how they're self-centered. When you think about forgiving someone, it is always in accordance to the proportion of your pain. Like, I would have forgiven you, but you annoyed me too much. Me. I've been wanting to forgive you the whole year, but ah, I don't like how you keep on I, I, me, 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 me. The reason we struggle again in forgiving people when they've wronged us is because we are self-centered. If we constantly have before us the cross of Jesus, have a healthy understanding of what God has done in forgiving us, One, you can never forgive anyone for anything that's a much greater offense than what God forgave you for. Start from there. Remind yourself that there is nothing anyone could ever do to you that is more offensive than what you did to God. Nothing. And so for every time you have to forgive someone, you're doing nothing more than God has done. What it took for God to forgive us, to send his son to die on the cross, that price you never have to pay. So for every offense against you, for every sin you feel has been committed against you, you are behaving like God when you forgive. Oftentimes the obstacle is... You put God aside and say, me, this is how I feel. But God, in Ephesians, is telling us, forgive one another as I forgave you in Christ. God forgave us. Did we ask for forgiveness? Some people are going to say yes. But Ephesians told us, while you were dead, while you were dead, unable to ask for help, not knowing you even needed help, God made you alive in Christ. Friends, it's not a prerequisite for someone to apologize for you to forgive them. Because if that's how you do your things, that's not how God does it. Because if God needed us to apologize first, no one would be here. We were all dead sinners. So that is the difference of the new life. That in the world, you have to apologize, get on your knees, write a long apology. You should when you've wronged others. But as a believer... Do not tie your heart on the need to feel, yeah, 
and now you're crying, now I've forgiven you. Now you've felt it. That's not the new way of life. God calls us to forgive others in the same way he has forgiven us in Christ. One, unconditional. Unconditional and a response to a commandment from God that God calls us to forgive. He doesn't simply suggest or offer us an opinion. He says we must forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ, if truly we are. So in summary, we are called to be like God, to put on the new self, to live in a way that is worthy. Chapter 4, at the beginning, Paul says, live a life that is worthy of the new life, the new calling you have received. To do this, we must obey God's commands. And we know that if we want to be like God, we must obey his commands. Do what God wants us to do. And so we have to resist the world continually. We live so close to it. We have all this influence coming in from the world every day, every waking moment. Say no to the world. Put off those old former ways of life, those habits, those thinking processes, those attitudes, and put on the new way of life so that we may become like God, become like Christ. I'd like us to just humble ourselves and pray. Don't stand. Stay where you are. <clears throat> I said at the start that it's, in, it's difficult, impossible in fact, to have your way of life similar to that of the world. No distinction and yet claim to be a new creation. I also say that it is not enough to claim that you're a Christian. What is important is that you truly have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so every, every time we're in the teen service, at least, I know we always, always, by God's grace, know that if there is anyone who hasn't received Christ as our Lord and Savior, who hasn't made that decision, who hasn't accepted Jesus, because that's where it all begins. All this that we've been talking about, the new life and the new self, is, is a conversation for those who are born again, those who have accepted Jesus. And so if you haven't accepted Jesus, our prayer is that you will have an opportunity to do that. We have so many leaders in the teen service that would be more than eager to pray with you, to talk to you. So if you're there and you want to make that decision, you want to come to Christ, do not hesitate to approach anyone. I'm going to ask you to stand up, put up your hand. There are leaders here after the service. Feel free to walk up to any one of them and they would be more than glad to help you. But even more, if we indeed are God's children, if we are a new creation, let us pray. Father, you know our hearts, you search our hearts, and there is nothing that is hidden from you in all creation. You challenge us this morning with very clear words from the letter to the Ephesians about what it means to become like you, what it means to put off the old self and put on the new self. We can't claim ignorance again. We can't say that we don't know what it means to live for you. We can't say that we don't know the difference between the old way of life and the new way of life. Lord, I pray that you help each and every one of these children, that you help them to understand more and more what you have done for them in Christ, to understand more and more the cost you paid to redeem them from death, to redeem them from darkness, to bring them into your kingdom of light. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them in their new self to live for you. Strengthen them, give them the power and the ability to put off those things which are of the old self, which are remnants of the sinful nature, habits that are not fitting for your children. I pray, Lord, that you continue to strengthen them by the power of the Holy Spirit to produce, to fruit, to live a life that is evidence of being of the spirit, the fruit of a good tree will be evident in their lives. I pray for them, Lord, that they themselves have that assurance of salvation, that they would know certainly that they are yours, that there would be no doubt in their minds about whose they are, that they are your children. We thank you so much, Lord, for
for your mercy and your grace, that while we were sinners, dead in our transgressions, you made us alive in Christ. This is love that we didn't love you, God, you Give you all the glory and honor. Your name be praised now.